Chapter 14 of the AEF, with General Pershing and the American Forces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The AEF, with General Pershing and the American Forces, by Haywood Brown. Chapter 14 we visit the French army. The Germans haven't thrown a single shell into Rheims today, said our conducting officer apologetically. Yesterday, he continued more cheerfully, they sent more than 500 big ones and they wounded two of my officers. We left the little inn at the fringe of the town and rode into the square in front of the cathedral. At the door, the officer turned us over to the curator. The old man led us up the aisle to a point not far from the altar. Here he stopped, and pointing to a great shell hole in the floor said, On this spot in the year 496, Clovis, the king of the Franks, was baptized by the blessed Saint Remy with oil which was brought from heaven in a holy flask by a dove. Something flew over the cathedral just then, but we knew it was not a dove. It whistled like a strong wind, and presently the shop of a confectioner some ten blocks away folded up with a ripping, smashing sound. Clovis, with his fourteen centuries wrapped about him, was safe enough. He had quit the spot in time. But a younger man ducked. The old guide did not even look up. The first stone of the present cathedral was laid in May 1212, by the Archbishop Alberic de Humbert, he said. Another big shell tore the sky, and this time the smash was near. It seemed certainly no more than nine blocks away. The young man began to calculate. He figured that he was seven centuries down, while the Germans had nine blocks to go. That was something, but the guide failed to keep up his pace through the centuries. There were no more happy hiatuses. Scholars dispute, he continued, as to who was the architect of the cathedral. Some say it was designed by Robert de Cousy, others named Bernard de Soissons, but certain authorities hold de Gautier de Rheims and Jean d'Orbet. Two more shells crossed the cathedral. The controversy seemed regrettable, and the young man shifted constantly from foot to foot. He appeared to feel that there was less chance of being hit if he were on the wing, so to speak. One or two have named Jean-Loup, said the guide, but he shook his head even as he mentioned him. It was evident that he had no patience with Lou or his backers. Indeed, the heresy threw him off his stride, and the next smash which came during the lull was more significant than any of the others. The crash was the peculiarly disagreeable one which occurs when a large shell strikes a small hardware store. Even the guide noticed this shell. It reminded him of the war. Since April, he said, the Germans have been bombarding Rim with naval guns. All the shells which they fire now are 320 or larger. They fire about 150 shells a day at the city, mostly in the afternoon and they usually aim at the cathedral or some place nearby. The young man noted by his watch that it was just half-past one. 
A week ago the Germans fired a 320 shell through the roof, but it did not explode. I will show it to you, but first I must ask you to touch nothing, not even a piece of glass, for we want to put everything back again that we can after the war. On the floor there was evidence that some patient hand had made a beginning of seeking to fit together in proper sequence all the available tiny glass fragments from the shattered rose windows. It was a pitiful jigsaw puzzle, which would not work. The curator stepped briskly up the nave, and at the end of a hundred paces he stopped. This is the most dangerous portion of the cathedral, he explained. Most of the big shells have come in here and he pointed to three great holes in the ceiling. Then he showed us the monstrous shell which had not exploded and the fragments of others which had. Down toward the west end of town fresh fragments were being made. Each hole in the cathedral roof sounded a different note as the shells raced overhead. But the old curator was musing again. He had forgotten the war even though the smashed and twisted bits of iron and stone from yesterday's clean hit lay at his feet. The first stone of the present cathedral was laid in May 1212 by the Archbishop Alberic de Humbert, he said. Alberic gave all the money he could gather and the chapter presented its treasury, and all about the clergy appealed for funds in the name of God. Kings of France and mighty lords made contributions, and each year there was a great pilgrimage, headed by the image of the Blessed Virgin, through all the villages. And the building grew, and sculptors from all parts of France came and embellished it, and in 1430 it was finished. You see, gentlemen, he said, it took more than 200 years to build our cathedral. We left the cathedral then and paused for a minute in the square before the statue of Jeanne d'Arc, who brought her king to Reims and had him crowned. In some parts of France, devout persons speak of the Jeanne statue in Rim as a miracle because, although the cathedral has been scarred and shattered and every building round the square badly damaged, the statue of Jeanne is untouched. I looked closely and found the miracle was not perfect. A tiny bit of the scabbard of Jeanne had been snipped off by a flying shrapnel fragment, but the sword of Jeanne, which is raised high above her head, has not a nick in it. Crossing the square, we went into the office of L'Eclaireur de l'Est. This daily newspaper has no humorous column, no editorials, no sporting page, and no dramatic reviews, and yet is probably the most difficult journal in the world to edit. The chief reportorial task of the staff of L'Eclaireur is to count the number of shells which fall into the city each day. That doesn't sound hard. The reporter can hear them all from his desk and many he can see, for the cathedral just across the street is still the favorite target of the Germans. Sometimes the reporter does not have to look so far. The office of L'Eclaireur has been hit eleven times during the bombardment and three members of the staff have been killed. One big shell fell in the composing room and so now the paper is set by hand. It is a single sheet and the circulation is limited to the three or four thousand civilians who have stuck to Rheim throughout the bombardment. One of the few who remain is a man who keeps a picture postcard shop in a building next door to the newspaper office. His roof has been knocked down about his head and his business is hardly thriving. 
I asked him why he remained. I started to go away several months ago after one day when they put some gas shells into the town, he said. The very next morning I put all my things into a cart and started up that street there. I had gone just about to the third street when a shell hit the house behind me. It killed my horse and wrecked the wagon, and so I picked up my things and came back. It seemed to me I wasn't meant to go away from Rheims. The shelling increased in violence before we left the office of L'Eclaireur. One shell was certainly not more than a hundred and fifty yards away, but the work went on without interruption. The printers who were setting ads never looked up. Mostly these advertisements were of houses in Rim which were renting lower than ever before. If there was anyone in the visiting party who felt uncomfortable, he was unwilling to show it, for just outside the door of the newspaper office there sat an old lady with a lap full of fancy work. A shell came from over the hills and, in the seconds while it whistled and then smashed, the old lady threaded her needle. A day later, when some of us were willing to confess that of all miserable sounds the whistling of a shell was the meanest, we found a curious kink in the brain of everyone. It was the universal experience that the slightest bit of cover, however inadequate, gave a sense of safety out of all proportion to its utility. Thus we all felt much more uncomfortable in the square than when we stood in the composing room of the newspaper which was shielded by the remains of a glass skylight. The same curious psychological twist can be found among soldiers at the front. Again and again men will be found taking apparent comfort in the fact that half an inch of tin roof protects them from the shells of the Germans. One is always taken from the Cathedral of Rheim to the wine cellars. The children of darkness are invariably wiser than the children of light, and the champagne merchants have not suffered as the churchmen have. Their business places have been knocked about their heads, but their treasures are underground deep enough to defy the biggest shells. In the cellar of a single company which we visited, there were 12 million quarts of wine. Even the German invasion at the beginning of the war failed to deplete this stock. Hundreds of people live in these cellars, which are laid out in avenues and streets. We came first to New York, a street with tier upon tier of wine bottles, then to Boston, then to Buenos Aires, then to Montreal. One of the visitors explained that the street named New York contained the wine destined to be shipped to that city, while Buenos Aires contained the consignment for the Argentine capital, and so on. We nodded acceptance of the theory, but the next wine-laden street was called Carnot, and the next was Jeanne d'Arc. From the cellars we made a journey to a battery of French 75s. It was a peaceful military station, for so well were the guns concealed that they seemed exempt from German fire, in spite of the fact that they had been in place for half a year. The men sat about underground playing cards and reading newspapers, but the commander of the battery was unwilling that we should go with such a peaceful impression of his guns. He brought his men to action with a word or two and sent six shells sailing at the German first-line trenches for our benefit. We left, half-deafened, but delighted. No child could be more eager to show a toy than is a French officer to let a visitor see in some small fashion how the war wags. We went from the battery to a first-line trench. 
It was slow work down miles and miles of camouflaged road to the communicating trench, and all along the line we were stopped by kindly Frenchmen, who wanted us to see how their dugouts were decorated, or the nature of their dining room, or the first aid dressing station, or any little detail of the war with which they were directly concerned. Much can be done with a dugout when a few back numbers of La Vie Parisienne are available. Still, this scheme of decoration may be carried too far. I will never forget the face of a YMCA man who joined us at a French officer's mess one day. It was a low-ceilinged room, with pine walls, but not an inch of wall was visible, for a complete papering of La Vie Parisienne pictures had been provided. Among the ladies thus drafted for decorative purposes, there was perhaps chiffon enough to make a single arm brassard. Trenches, save in the very active sectors, give the visitor a sense of security. Open places are the ones which try the nerves of civilians, and it was pleasant to walk with a wall of earth on either hand, even if some of us did have to stoop a bit. From the point where we entered the communication trench to the front line was probably not more than half a mile as the crow flies, if, indeed, he is foolish enough to travel over trenches but the sunken pathway turned and twisted to such an extent that it must have been two miles before we struck even the third line. Here we were held while ever so many dugouts and kitchens and gas alarm stations and telephones were exhibited for us. They were all included in the routine of war, but of a sudden romance popped up from underground. The conducting officer paused at the entrance of a passage. Another dugout, we thought. Bring them up said the officer to a soldier, and the poilu scrambled down the steps and came up with a birdcage containing two birds. These are the last resort, explained the officer. We send messages from the trenches by telephone if we can. If the wires are destroyed, we use flashes from a light, but if that station is also broken and we must have help, the birds are freed. Neither pigeon seemed in the least puffed up over the responsibility which rested upon him. The German trenches were just 400 yards away from the first lines of the French. It was possible to see them by peering over the rim of the trench, but we quickly ducked down again. Presently we grew less cautious, and one or two tried to stare the Germans out of countenance. If they could see that strangers were peeping at them, they paid no attention. The French officer in charge seemed embarrassed. He explained that it was an exceptionally quiet day. Only the day before the Germans had been active with trench mortars, and he couldn't understand why they were sulking now. Possibly the bombardment from the French 75s, which had been going on all day, had softened them a bit. He looked about the trench dejectedly. The soldiers of the front line were playing cards, eating soup, or modeling little grotesque figures out of the soft rock which lined the walls of the trenches. He called sharply to a soldier, who fetched a box of rifle grenades out of a cubby hole and sent half a dozen, one after the other, spinning at the German lines. Probably they fell short, or perhaps the Germans were simply sullen. At any rate, they paid no attention. They were not disposed into being prodded to show off for American visitors. The officer suddenly thought up a method to retrieve the lost reputation of his trench. 
If we could only stand till dark, he would send us all out on a patrolling party right up to the wire in front of the German first line. We declined, and made some little haste to leave this ever so obliging officer. In another moment we feared he would organize an exhibition offensive for our benefit and reserve us places in the first wave. If things were quiet on the ground, there was plenty of activity aloft. It was a clear day, and both sides had big sausage balloons up for observation. Once a German plane tried to attack a French sausage, but it was driven off, and all day long the Germans sought without success to wing the balloon with one of their long-range guns. In that particular sector on that particular day, the French unquestionably had the mastery of the air. We saw four of their planes in the air to every one German, and once a fleet of five cruised over the German lines. The Bush opened on them with shrapnel. It was a clear day, without a breath of wind, and the white puffs clung to the sky at the point where they broke. Presently the French planes swooped much lower, and the Germans opened on them with machine guns. Somebody has said that machine gun fire sounds as if a crazy carpenter was shingling a roof, and somebody else has compared the noise to a typewriter being operated in an upper room, but it is still more like a riveting machine. It has a business-like, methodical sound to me. To my ear, there is no malice in a machine gun, but then I have never heard it from an aeroplane. The officer in charge accompanied us to the end of the communicating trench. Where are you going? he asked. We told him that we were going directly to Paris. Have a good time, he said, but leave one dinner and one drink for me. You are going to Paris? we asked. He looked over toward the German wire and smiled a little. I may, he said. End of chapter 14